0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist Adam Roberts. My patient today is an old friend of mine, Louisa Weiss, who is one of the very first food bloggers. Her blog, The Wednesday Chef, is still one of my favorites to read, although she recently transitioned, just like David Leibovitz, to her Substack newsletter, A Letter from Berlin. Um, She's also the author of the memoir, My Berlin Kitchen, and the cookbook, Classic German Baking. In today's session, Louisa talks all about the connection between her emotions and her food writing.
1: Why I fell in love with cooking so much was that it was something that could, um, that really soothed me when I was terribly homesick. And I've been terribly homesick most of my life. Her thoughts on European mayonnaise. French mayonnaise is very different from German. Like French mayonnaise is the best. German mayonnaise is sweet and weird. And German food's bad rap. Hamburgers, hot dogs, all of that comes from Germany. There's a reason why so many German foods are recognizable to Americans.
0: So without further ado, here's my lunch therapy session with Louisa Weiss. Okay, well, Louisa, it's so nice to see you again after so many years.
1: How are you doing? It's great to see you, too. I'm good. Thank you. How are you?
0: I'm good. Well, I was walking down memory lane this morning when I was actually walking my dog, and I was trying to remember like when you and I first met each other, and I believe it was at the, the City Bakery in New York. Do you remember that?
1: I, I, I was trying to remember, too. I don't remember first meeting you. But City Bakery sounds about right. I I lived on 18th Street and I worked on 18th Street for like eight out of the 10 years that I lived in New York. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah. And I remember like I think at the time you were working in publishing, right? So maybe that was part of like, yeah, I felt like a professional meeting. But then we became friends. And years later, I came to Berlin and you made Craig and I lunch, which was so fun.
1: That's right. That's right. You came over and we had Mapo Tofu, right? Wasn't it something? No, like that? no.
0: You made um, you made a recipe from Salty, the cookbook Salty. Remember?
1: Oh yes. Now I'm remembering. Yes, that yeah.
0: that. Yep. It was like an incredible <laughs> sandwich. Like you made the focaccia from scratch. Yes. I still yeah. remember it pretty vividly, and it was like um, the, not the fisherman's daughter, but like it, it was the like something daughter, and it had like hard boiled eggs and anchovies, hard boiled eggs
1: and yeah. beets. Beats maybe? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, anyway, well, it's so good to see you again. And c- congratulations. I just was catching up on your life, and you are working on a new book right now, right?
1: Yes, that's right. I'm working on a new cookbook for 10-speed press, tentatively called Classic German Cooking. So it'll be a follow-up to Classic German Baking.
0: That's amazing. And so how <laughs> how far along into it are you?
1: Oh, not <clears throat> not far along at all. Um I, I mean, this book has been percolating in my mind um, since I even since the testing phase of the of the baking book. So there's a lot going on up here. But um, at the moment, I'm still doing the sort of recon, you know, like which recipes am I going to start with? Um, what are the various categories of recipes I need to create and how am I going to set up my testing schedule? Because with a cookbook like this. Uh, testing ends up being a really, really big part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Writing, I mean, there are going to be some essays about German food culture and Austrian food culture, but at the moment I'm still, yeah, working on the nitty gritty.
0: Well, there's so much to talk to you about because, I mean, we have like your whole career as a food blogger, which, of course, like I know all about because we were kind of doing it at the same time. And we can also talk about you moving to Berlin and that whole story, which you wrote about in your wonderful book. Um, and then we could talk about your cookbook writing. I mean, but I, I will say in terms of lunch therapy guests, you are per- perhaps the best suited for this because I feel like your writing has always been really emotional and there's always been an emotional link between um, what you're cooking and how you're feeling. Like, I feel like that's always sort of the vibe of your blog. And now, I guess, your newsletter. Um, but I, I've always loved that about your writing, that it's it's so personal. And I think that's what makes food writing great is when you feel an emotional attachment to the person whose work you're reading, And then that makes you want to cook the thing that they're cooking because you understand their emotional state. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and and how, how you think about your food writing in terms of working through your emotions.
1: Thank you so much for all those nice things. Um... Yeah. I kind of can't decouple one from the other. Um, To me, writing about food is really just writing about life because food is such a, I mean, it seems almost like cliched food is such an integral part of life. I mean, obviously we can't live without it, but to me, um, yeah, writing about food, I've never been able to write about food without an emotional component because Mm -hmm. so it is such an emotional thing and I write about um in in my food writing I feel like I so I have sort of a complicated background for those who may not know I'm half American half Italian but I live in Germany and I've spent my whole life really going back and forth between the U.S. and Europe and um it sounds really fancy, but um, in reality, it's emotionally quite uh, difficult, and especially as a child. And I feel like the reason why I fell in love with cooking so much was that it was something that could, um, that really soothed me when I was terribly homesick, and I've been terribly homesick most of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of can't, yeah, you know, I can't write about one without the other, because for me, they're completely enmeshed.
0: And when you say homesick, are you homesick for the U.S. when you're in Germany? Are you homesick? No. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I have to say
1: moving back to Germany um, sort of solved. That was the piece of the puzzle that was missing. So um, I love living here. And I, um, even though I fully identify as American and I, you know, miss my father and my friends and my stepmother and everybody in, and I miss my, my old career and all my colleagues, um, I really feel at home here. So I don't feel homesick for the States, really. I feel more like nostalgic, you know, like mm-hmm. I can think about New York or my old life with such like nostalgia and happiness, but it doesn't make me sad. It just makes me happy.
0: <laughs> and it's funny because my grandfather once said, and I think he was quoting some, maybe like Thomas, uh, what's his name? But uh, it's like, you can never go home again. Who said that? Isn't that like the name? Of oh, the- uh,
1: yes. Thomas, P- not Thomas Pynchon. Um, It's going to
0: bother me. Um, Yeah, yeah. um, You can
1: never go home. I know, but you can. And actually some people should, like me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but like even in terms of like New York, I was just thinking about New York because I moved to California 10 years ago. And it's like when I went back to New York to visit Craig uh, this last summer because he was working on something – like, I, I felt like I was in a museum of my old life. Like, I would go to the, I went back to the old coffee shop I would go to, and I went back to the like Three Lives bookstore, but it didn't feel the same because it's like I wasn't living there anymore and I, it wasn't my life anymore. And so it's sort of hard to go back. I mean, I feel like your story, I mean, if, for those who don't know, Louisa wrote an incredible memoir called My My Life in Berlin, right? Or My Berlin Kitchen. My Berlin Kitchen. Sorry, I knew that. That's okay. I don't know why I said My Life in Berlin. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Uh, and, but you wrote about, making that return to berlin and and the emotions involved and i guess um how many years has it been now since you moved back to berlin
1: yeah it's been this is like i think the 11th or 12th year i uh, moved okay. right around 2010
0: and do you feel completely rooted there now and and like that it is your home and this is
1: where you're meant to be yeah i mean you know i i was born here and even though i left when i was 2 to to live with my father in, in Boston. My mother always lived here. My mother stayed here. She's Italian, but she had moved to Berlin with my dad. And um, when I would visit her, and then later when I lived here and went to um, middle school and high school, living with her, we had our own sort of little bubble. Um, mm-hmm. So it was West Berlin in those days. So a Berlin, West Berlin was like this weird little bubble. It was like mm-hmm. an Island in the middle of the GDR And so it had this very special status anyway, and West Berliners definitely felt special. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then within West Berlin, there were these pockets of different cultures, right? There were Americans. We weren't army, but we were Americans and Europeans that were sort of in Berlin for various reasons, whether it was love or work. And so there was this special sort of, I mean, It's like a, like a little immigrant bubble. And so I grew up in that and that, Mm -hmm. that feeling is really special and unique and I've never been able to find it anywhere else. And Mm -hmm. moving back, I just kind of slid right back into that bubble, which feels really lovely and warm. So I, I I live in Berlin and I'm married to a Berliner Mm -hmm. and German's my second language. And so, and my kids, I mean, I have two little German boys Um, but I still really feel like I'm in this bubble. Like I, my, my children go to this German American school that I went to. Um, my family friends are all still here who are bi-national couples. All of my sort of contemporaries are also these bi-national couples. So it just feels like I'm back in that one special, unique place that only exists here. I don't know if that answers your question. No,
0: that's great. I love that. And the GDR is, what does
1: that stand for? Uh, The German Democratic Republic. So the East, like the East German state, Right. right? So if you think of Germany, before the wall fell, mm-hmm. there was West Germany and East Germany. And Berlin was this city in the middle of East Germany that was then also divided. So West Berlin was really this little island. Tiny.
0: Yeah, I remember that of... when I was there, like sort of going to the museum. I forgot what the name of the museum was, but it was sort of all about um, the wall and like the, what it was like to live in commun- the communist side. And
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, Well, anyway, well, we're going to get sidetracked because the time has come now to ask you, uh, Louisa, what did you have for lunch today?
1: So I had um, I had leftover roasted fennel and tomatoes, mm-hmm. which we had made the other day and then just needed to be eaten. I uh, I made um um, peppers, which I wrote about in my newsletter today, and I had to okay. test them for the newsletter. So we ate those. And we should and plug then... your
0: newsletter. And it, it's I mean, you <laughs> called it My Berlin Kitchen, right?
1: No, it's actually called Letter from Berlin because I letter was from to Berlin. Get I'm getting all your t- from the kitchen, wrong. but still keep yeah, yeah. the Berlin. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Letter, so it's from, letter Berlin. from Berlin. Okay, <laughs> yeah.
0: okay. So if people want to subscribe Letter from Berlin on Substack, right?
1: Yeah. So it's louisa.weiss.substack.com. And then I also made a tuna salad, but it was like tuna fish and celery and um, a little bit of mayo and some and lettuce. And we kind of, I was in a rush. And I, so we ended up sort of eating it instead of like putting the salad in the tuna. We were kind of eating the salad and I mean, eating the tuna fish and stick, sticking salad in our mouths. It was kind of a mess, but tasted
0: great. <laughs> wow. Okay. This is a very complex lunch to kind of diagnose. I mean, oh, you know, okay. I Freud was from Austria, right? Is that right? He was. Yeah. yeah so right. I feel like, you know, we're, this is probably why your lunch is so complex because you're in oh. that part of the world. Because um, <laughs> well, I feel like there were so many components. So you had the leftover fennel and tomato, you had mm-hmm. the gratinade peppers, and then you had the tuna, and then you had the salad that went with the tuna. Mm-hmm. And you, were you feeding... This is lunch, right? This wasn't dinner, because also we should point out that it is ten fourteen a.m. my time, but it is seven fourteen p.m. your time. So you also perhaps had dinner already, I would imagine too. I
1: did. Would you like to know the oh no, that comes at May the end. meal that just happened?
0: No, no, no. We saved no. that for the end of the podcast. No, that <laughs> throws off know. everything. Now I do want okay. to. we'll find out <laughs> at the very end. Um, that, that's a good cliffhanger for people who are gonna you know stick around. Um, yeah. But I was gonna say so. W- all these elements that were on the table, were you feeding your family or was it just for you?
1: Just for my husband and I. So since the pandemic started, my husband works at Volkswagen and Volkswagen's offices are in another German state. So in regular times, he would commute four hours a day to his job oh and he was God. never home at lunchtime. But since the pandemic, he uh, works in our spare room, which is this room that I'm in right now. And so he's home for lunch every day, which is lovely. Um And so I cook for the both of us or I make lunch for the both of us. It's not usually it's not always that elaborate, but we had all these various things that needed to be.
0: And are the kids back in school or are they um, home too? No.
1: Yeah. So the kids are back in school. I mean, it's really the numbers are kind of crazy right now. And just yesterday, the Berlin Senate said that parents can keep their kids home if they want. Mm -hmm. Schools aren't prepared to offer homeschooling. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mess at the moment. But yeah, yeah, the kids aren't
0: home. It's so confusing for parents right now, I'm sure, like just to figure out what to do and what's best for your children, especially, I mean, my best friend uh, Diana has three kids and like, you know, it was almost like they were becoming feral, like when they were just home so much. And it's just like at a certain point, it's like you got to get them back in the world and, um, you know. Um, well, so with your lunch, it sounds like the lunch of like a food writer too. It's like you have all these things you're working on. I mean, were, were the things that you were eating also part of different projects? I mean, you mentioned one was for your newsletter. Uh, were, were any of them for other writing things or were they all just things that you had left over from or things you were making for yourself?
1: The fennel and tomatoes, I've blogged about it before because it's one of my staple like sides. I make mm-hmm. it, I don't know, once a week during the winter. I remember that recipe.
0: Yeah, I remember yeah. reading it. And I came, yeah. yeah, it's familiar.
1: It's really easy. You just like smack a bunch of stuff in a pan and stick it in the oven and forget about it. And so, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and I really love cooked fennel with tomatoes. So mm-hmm. it's something that selfishly I like, I mean, I'm the only cook in the house. So I basically get to decide what we eat all the time, which is like 90% nice and 10% annoying. Um,
0: <laughs> I know what that feels and, like. I, yeah, I mean, right. There's no, there's no converse. Craig always says he's like, Adam pretends that like I have a say in it, but like, I really don't. And it's pretty, boring. I think
1: it's so sweet when I hear like, um, um, Jenny Rosenstrack of, um, dinner, a love story when she and her husband, she's like, what should we make for dinner? And then they have this like marital conversation yeah. about, about dinner, and and they're both, like, equally invested in who's cooking what. And oh, I'm God, like, oh, no. So I'm nothing like
0: no. that. I mean, <laughs> no. it's so funny because Craig started making cocktails during the pandemic, and even when he comes into the kitchen to cut a lemon in half or a lime, mm-hmm. I get annoyed. I'm like, can you do that somewhere else? Can you just go <laughs> into it? You know, it's like literally he's there for, like, 30 seconds. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I, before I get to the big question, the smaller question is, how do you do your tuna?
1: Um, well, I actually – this is, I mean, I just kind of threw this together, but it was like a can of tuna, a little bit of mayo. We now get Hellman's mayonnaise here, which Great. is a big deal because mm. up until that point, German mayonnaise is the um, yeah, That's so oh, yeah, surprising. Nice. I would think yes.
0: European mayonnaise would be better.
1: Yes, you and you would be correct, but French mayonnaise is very different from German. It's like French mayonnaise <laughs> is the best. German mayonnaise is sweet and weird. Um, so I did... Tuna fish, um, a ton of lemon juice, a little bit of mayo, some celery, and then the the like these little gem. Do you get little gem? Those tiny little lettuces that are really amazing, really
0: good. Um, I feel like I could I could do a separate podcast called Tuna Therapy because I feel like I can you can learn a lot by how people make their tuna salad. Um, Yes, but my larger question, which connects back to the our initial topic of conversation, is. What would you say was your emotional state when you made this lunch and how was it connected to your emotional state?
1: Well, I'm going to have to confess something to you. Yes, please. I took half a Ritalin this morning. <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. Okay. My best friend's husband has ADHD and okay. I have been operating under the assumption that I have ADHD and, I'm in, and my therapist and I are you know in the process of figuring it out. But um, I've been struggling a lot with focus and stuff. And so my, my, my friend and her husband a couple weeks ago were like, you should just try Ritalin because you'll figure out pretty quickly if it's for you or not just by trying it. Yeah. So I said, I'm not, I do not normally like just pop random pills, but gave me a pill <laughs> and I broke it in half. very for us. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I, t- and I took half a Ritalin this morning and it kicked in about an hour before lunch. And I will say this. I do not have the kind of ADHD that requires Ritalin because, mm-hmm. oh, my God, it was way – I just did not need it. So, um, so lunch what did was it made, What did it
0: do to you, though? Did, how did, did it affect you at all?
1: Oh, my – yes. It made me feel like I had six cups of coffee. So oh, I was okay. just like – like going a hundred miles an hour, like smashing things together, feeling really kind of wild and trembly, and um, yeah, like I was super overcaffeinated, so that was my emotional state. It was kind <laughs> of like I was sort of half impressed at how negatively I was reacting to it, but also, I now understand why college kids take it as an upper yeah. I mean it's yeah scary stuff so I would I mean don't recommend it unless you think you have a severe case of ADHD <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think I do
0: <laughs> sidebar I think your earrings are maybe jangling against the oh, thing I don't know if they're, it's I'll hard take to them take off. them out. yeah Next. just because I'm just thinking ahead um yeah, yeah. well that's fun well I mean I've been watching pen 15 do you watch that
1: oh yes and I remember, love like, it
0: did you watch the new season of it
1: Mm-mm, I haven't watched it yet
0: Oh, she gets diagnosed with ADHD, and then she starts dating this boy who basically just like dating her for her ADHD meds. <laughs> and so oh. she has to she has to like give him her meds. So you'll enjoy that aspect. Well, it's funny because I started Lexapro like a year and a half ago or two years ago, um, mm-hmm. and that that really helped me a bit. I mean, because I feel like our generation is a little easily distracted. I mean, we grew up with like TV, all kinds of TV and Nintendo, and we were like cell phones came up, and and then like AOL. And I just feel like I just feel like my brain is so addled with stuff, especially, like, right now with my phone. I'm at a point now where I've kind of decided to lean in with my phone as opposed to, like, you know, block everything and delete everything. I mean, I started this year, and I'm like, forget that. Like, I'm just going to, like, be kind to myself about my cell phone usage. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. now I, like, drain the battery by, like five o'clock. Um, but I just, I think there's a certain kind of frenetic quality to being alive in 2022. Um, also because of what's going on in the world and like the the amount of input we're getting in. So it's hard to know how to diagnose ourselves, I think, um, or how to treat ourselves in terms of, you know, being overstimulated. And, um, and I'm sure for you too, it's like, you've got a lot, you have kids at home, you have a lot of other stuff going on. So um, I
1: mean, yeah, I think that I think everything you've said I agree with all of it and yeah, it's it's a tough time. I mean, it t- to me the 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 phone sort of really took on a whole new um life when Trump was inaugurated yes, like somehow that there's a real my cell phone usage really went through the roof in those mm-hmm. years. But um but yeah, I mean it's just it's a it's a crazy time to be a person who thinks and writes and mm-hmm. has to funnel and find time and um, make space for it. And I mean, I have certain things that I do to really disconnect. Like, for example, I I stopped reading certain publications, just because they were adding to the noise in my head. And there is so much noise in my head Mm -hmm. and made time for reading more books. And Mm. I started, that's that's one little thing trade off I was able to do that really made a difference in some ways, but in other ways I, I'm totally with you. Like you know we're just <laughs> overstimulated all the time.
0: Well, it's funny because as food bloggers, I used to um, feel so connected to the internet. Like I felt like the I felt. I mean, I'm sure you felt this way too that you could like plug yourself into the internet and like channel your personality or your issues into it and that you would get a lot of good stuff back like you know you connect with people we we met each other we made other friends and it's like but now it feels like you put yourself onto the internet and then you get so much back and the things that come back are like 50% good 50% bad and you have to kind of weed through it to like find the stuff that's useful and helpful so you know it's a different culture that we're a part of Um, and so I'm curious like I feel like I, I also, I think you've maybe heard this, but I talked about you with David Leibovitz when I had him on, and we were Thank talking you. about the transition from food blogging to newsletter writing, and I'm curious, and, I, and as I said on that podcast, I'm a huge fan of your blog. You're one of the few old-school food blogs that, like, I still manually load up. Like, every morning I do, like, you know, David Leibovitz, Smitten Kitchen, um, and then The Wednesday Chef. So can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about transitioning to newsletter writing for yourself?
1: I just, it made me so happy to hear you guys uh, say all those lovely things. And I also, I still have blog bookmarks and I check (laughs) in with them and I feel, yeah, it's just, it made me laugh that you do that too. Um, The transition to newsletter writing. I mean, in some ways it feels like we're going back to the, to the roots, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like we were so lucky to have started blogging when we did. And I really, I mean, I've written about this and said it in a number of interviews. Like I definitely, I was convinced I was the last one to the party when I started the Wednesday chef in 2005. And I was like, no, aren't any readers left. Everybody's, you know, got their blog readers full of blog roll full of other people. Um, And of course that's ridiculous now in retrospect, but um, it felt like such a special time because We all knew each other and it was so, it was just so sweet and innocent. And we were writing about things that we were passionate about and it felt, it didn't feel like we were producing content.
0: Right, right.
1: It just felt like it was a diary in a way, except that it was social and you could connect with other people and make friends and have meetups in real life. And it didn't feel like we were serving, it was serving any larger purpose other than just being a part of the world right now even even though I feel like newsletters are returned to those days in one way of course in another way they're not because Mm -hmm. we are trying to you know make a living and um a lot of us have careers that we're trying to support that we're trying to make the newsletter a part of and Mm -hmm. so it it feels more organic in some ways but in other ways those days are, are gone, and so um, we are content producers. And well, so but
0: to your credit, though, what I will say is, you never went down that slippery slope of like starting to game. I didn't. It never seemed like you were gaming your blog to like maximize SEO and you know do keywords. I mean, yeah. that's what I thought was so interesting about what David was saying was that. Because he kind of like as somebody who like really did make his living from it, like he really did have to go down those rabbit holes. But he still somehow maintained his voice and still maintained his integrity. But like he was like going under the hood and like really like you know doing the Google terms and all that. And I never figured that out. Although I did for a while. Like if you look at my food blog towards the end, I was trying to do that, just not very successfully. (laughs) And so Uh what I love what I love about what you've done is that you've always and, and very similar to Molly Weisenberg too. I would say like you both held on to your voices and held on to your integrity and really um, just wrote like for, as if it were still the the early days of food blogging. Yeah. Um, and so I'm curious, like, do you feel like putting yourself out there emotionally in 2022 feels the same as it did at the beginning, just in terms of, of how the internet is and how um, people can be on it?
1: I have had the, I suppose I can say like extreme good fortune that I... My readers are almost all incredibly lovely people, Mm -hmm. and I've I think I can count the number of nasty comments I've gotten on one hand. And nasty isn't even really applicable in those few (laughs) cases, it's more like I don't know, like someone, but one really did get under my skin. I feel like (laughs) some one woman said, Oh everything you write is such a bummer. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. And it was like, you know, the fifth month of the pandemic and we were all about to shoot ourselves. Um, right. And I was kind of like, well, I don't know what to tell you. Like, A, this is free. You don't need to be here. <laughs> but B, right. like, I'm not, I'm struggling. Who is doing well right mm-hmm. now? Um. So I feel that I've been very lucky and that I've been able to be super personal. I mean, also I wrote about, a lot of very personal things in my Berlin kitchen um, about my, my, you know, my romantic life um, about my parents, about kind of really private things, you know, that I would have, I always, somebody asked me about this years ago during a book reading for the, on the book tour for the first book, like, you know, did you have to, do you feel weird about having put so much private stuff out into the world? And the truth is of course that, I never share anything that I wouldn't tell the random stranger sitting next to me on an airplane. Um, And I feel like my experience in life has been that if you talk about your struggles and your pain or the things that you need perspective on Mm -hmm. 99% of the time, it, the audience wants to hear that they want to hear because Mm -hmm. they have the exact same struggles, the same pain, or they had it at some point, or they want it. So either they're commiserating or they're offering Mm -hmm. sympathy. I don't know. I've never, to me, it's been an incredible experience that I'm able to share, you know, personal stuff. And I mean, obviously I'm not sharing everything and Mm -hmm. I have little kids and I try to, especially with the older one who isn't so little anymore, I have to really respect his. How old is he? He's nine and a half.
0: And has he discovered your blog and your book? And like, has he asked about all that stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah. He knows about all of it. And um, he's definitely sort of both in, fascinated, interested, and also completely like, who cares? I mean, he's good to <laughs> his mom. But, right. um, but there is something about the sort of, like the instagram thing really he's he's quite interested in that and i don't really want him to be that interested in instagram and numbers and followers and stuff like that so i right. try to i try to destigmatize you know like make it a no big deal thing. We,
0: He's not we, on Instagram. He's going to be on TikTok. Is like we're, we, we yeah. old fogies are all on Instagram. <laughs> it's like his yeah. generation is like Instagram. That's for my grandparents, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I really admire that about you. And I, I feel like some Thank of the stuff you. that I've written that was most fulfilling on my blog was the most personal. Like when like, mm-hmm. I remember like I wrote a post about my parents meeting Craig's parents for the first time. Yeah. And, and like, and, and I know what that feels like. But on the flip side, like I also have so much fear about putting stuff out there and you know i for some reason when you were talking i was thinking about lena dunham
1: and Mm -hmm. that essay
0: that she wrote about um experimenting with her sister as a kid. Oh, like, yes. And like, you know, exploring her sister's body as little girls. And that like, then she got like pegged as like, a, or not pegged, labeled a... Um, the molest child.
1: You know, child molester,
0: seen. you know, and it's just like that backlash. But I mean, she's also so in the public eye that it, it feels a little different, but I, I <laughs> Slightly. guess... Slightly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: but you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I, yeah. I always think like, maybe I'll write an essay about blah, blah, blah. blah and like, oh God, like then what if somebody says, you know, so I really yeah. admire people who can really put themselves out there in that way but to bring it back to food for a second I'm curious I mean you wrote you do write a lot about depression and being sad and I'm curious like how does food play a role for you in terms of being a palliative or you know how does it help you work through some of the the depression that you go through And, and is there a link between specific foods and specific moods that you have
1: um well I think so. Cooking is such a therapeutic thing for me. I mean, obviously, during the pandemic, and especially in the months that we were at home with the children, and I was responsible for three meals a day, it stopped being therapeutic and it just became this Mm -hmm. (laughs) terrible task that had to be completed. Um, But cooking is therapeutic and it makes and it soothes me. So when I'm feeling sad or, you know, frustrated or whatever, more often than not, cooking will be the one thing I do in the day that Mm -hmm. makes me feel somewhat better, Mm -hmm. or at least a little bit more anchored in -hmm. the world. So, you know, exercise will make me feel happier. Like after I work out, I'm always like, why don't I do this every single day? This is the best (laughs) feeling ever.
0: Yes. That's not
1: what cooking isn't that kind of a mood changer, but it's like this it's this it's like this I mean, this sounds really lame, but it's like this friend that is mm-hmm. always there for you that is just a comfort um and like a salve and a, mm-hmm. and it's there it's there every day waiting for you and you know every day at six fifteen I'm like, all right, well, let's go see what happens in the kitchen and even if it's something as silly as making tomato sauce, there's something really, and the smells and stuff, they're just very, it's, it's a tonic. It's really soothing mm-hmm. and it just makes me feel comforted. And that's I feel the usually, same way. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that.
0: Oh, yeah, it feels like taking it. Like it's almost like I feel my body change when I'm in the kitchen. Mm. It's like it's like, especially with the phone of it all, and like the t- you know, just like computer and like all that goes away, and then suddenly I put my music on, and I'm like slicing an onion, and I just feel like my body like kind of relax a little, and I'm just like, okay, now yeah. I'm in the zone.
1: And do you think that's why you don't really want anybody in your space during that time?
0: Mm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a private. It's almost yeah, like I'm. I'm there's like some kind of nexus between, like, my internal space and then the external world of the kitchen, like, even just in terms of, like, the food in the pan and, like, drizzling the olive oil in and just, like, sort of it's all rhythmic and it's all, it feels emotional. It almost feels like painting or, like, playing the piano or something where it's, like... It's just there's, there's something going on emotionally that's connected to the food that I'm making, which I guess is that whole cliche of like cooking with love. But I feel like mm-hmm. there is something about soothing yourself and like knowing what you hunger for and, um, and how you're feeling and then being able to to treat that, I suppose, or address that at the stove yeah. or in the kitchen. Um, but are you, how is it for you with like kids underfoot? I mean, do they come in and out of the kitchen while you're cooking or do they stay away?
1: I mean – I. we have fallen into this routine that actually, when I cook dinner, they get to watch TV. Mm. And, and it's a, because they want to watch TV. I don't want to make it sound like it's something else. Like they are the ones desperate to watch TV, (laughs) Um, TV. (laughs) but I don't really enjoy having them in the kitchen. I'm not one of those moms. That's like, Come here my child and let me give you a child friendly knife. I have a child friendly <laughs> knife. It fills me with complete anxiety every time. <laughs> yeah. I even just contemplate giving it to one of them. So I'm not I'd, I'm I'm an alpha person in the kitchen. I don't really want other people there. There are very few exceptions. I really enjoy making Thanksgiving <laughs> meals <laughs> with my dad and my stepmother, but but otherwise, yeah, I prefer to be alone. I I, I need that time to just sort of decompress. Yeah. It's like, it's meditative. I don't meditate. I should, but, but that's meditation <laughs> for me.
0: All right, Louisa, I just took a bathroom break and that, that <laughs> totally threw us off because we lost our connection, but we're back now. And, um, and we were having such a good conversation, but I actually, the next subject I wanted to bring up, which is something we also talked about earlier was about your German identity and then your uh, Italian roots and then like uh, the U S of it all. And I'm curious how, these various cultures um, impact your cooking and your cuisine,
1: yeah, I mean so my mother's Italian um, she's not an enthusiastic cook mm-hmm. but um but she's the Italian one, and so I have this whole you know my whole maternal family is obsessed with food and just like any Italian family. And then I've got my American father, who's um, much more interested in cooking um, and always, always has been much more sort of curious and um, interested in different cultures. My my dad goes through these phases where, like, he'll cook only Hungarian food or only Indian food for, like, years or Korean food. And mm-hmm. um, so I've learned a lot about various food cultures, actually, through my American dad. And then um, the German thing. So yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I live in Germany, and I'm married to a German. So there's German food all around me. And, um, and I have a lot of emotional um, ties to certain German dishes, um, based on my school time here, mm-hmm. the really delicious lunch food that we were served, which sounds like an oxymoron, but actually it was, it was really good. No, um, that's German perfect stupid-
0: for lunch therapy too. I mean, Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> canteen, canteens are a huge part of German food culture. Like everybody eats their warm meal of the day at the office in an office canteen and canteens are public. So like if you go to city hall, there is a canteen for the city hall employees that it's open to the public. Um, and and then people have like you know cold sandwiches for dinner because they've had hmm. their one hot meal during the day. Hmm. Um, I didn't know. So that. yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: So what 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 was some of the canteen food or the school food that you specifically missed or remember?
1: Oh, I mean, so many. Like the the real the real greatest hits of german cooking so um there's something called koelrulade which is basically the german word for stuffed cabbage mm. um, that was a really big delicious uh meal that we would get with instant mashed potatoes i mean i'm assuming they were instant i don't think you were making them <laughs> from scratch i could be wrong forgive me lunch ladies if i'm wrong <laughs> um A special meal was um, for me personally. Were um, stuffed peppers. Love stuffed peppers. Always with a gravy. The Germans are big on gravy. Um, Lots of dumpling dishes. um, Mm -hmm. So potato dumplings or whatever. And then there were always special treat days where that we would get like ripe hot rice pudding with um, with like a cherry with with canned cherries or cinnamon sugar.
0: Yeah. Um, So those are all.
1: Yeah, lunch
0: things. <laughs> well, I was going to say this is a good opportunity to talk about German food in general, because I will confess mm. before I went to Germany, I, I was not particularly excited to eat German food. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't, it wasn't something I grew up ever eating. In fact, like when my parents took us to Epcot and there were like all the countries, like I remember just like, skipping over Germany, but also like I had such mixed feelings yeah. about Germany as a Jewish kid growing up, which is actually something mm-hmm. that I wrote about on my blog after I visited you in Berlin and had such a di- different experience than I expected. Um, but I guess a good question would be like, what is the, what do you think are the misunderstandings about German food? Um, and what is it that you love about it?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, oh, I could write a book about this. And <laughs> you I have. Going to. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think, first of all, German food is, you know, it's not the most appealing um, when when you, especially as, a, as an American or coming out from outside Europe, or for even frankly, from other countries in Europe, it's really easy to reduce German food to these archetypes, you know, and, and also to stereotypes. So there's like the very heavy meal stereotype, the sort of really porky, meaty um, profile that German food has. And a lot of people don't, eat like that, and aren't interested in eating like that. Um, But of course, like any country, Germany has a lot of regional differences. And, um, and yes, meat has historically, traditionally been a a big part of German food. But there's also a lot of um, sort of also traditionally vegetarian dishes, lots Mm -hmm. of salads, lots of soups, really interesting flavors that don't obviously make it to the greatest hits menu at an Epcot. So, you know, where you (laughs) see schnitzel and and currywurst or whatever, but, but German food is also about white asparagus and, um, and mugwort in roast goose and Mm -hmm. fruit, like cold fruit soups. I mean, it's central Europe. So there's a lot of influences there also from the Austro-Hungarian empire, which are like much more fruit and vegetable also focused. Um, So, I think that the the stereotypes exist for a reason, but it's also been flattened to a point where it's hard to imagine German food being anything but a really, you know, heavy, stodgy meal. And I'm hoping that with the book, I can um, broaden people's minds a little bit about what it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was making me think a little bit about history. And just in terms of the world's perception of Germany, or I guess the Americans' mm. perception of Germany in terms of historical, obviously like World War I, World War II, and how I wonder if that colors people's view of German food and almost like an unwillingness to like embrace it or consider it. Um, and just in terms of the roles the countries have played, or is it, maybe it's so much time has passed that maybe that's not true, but I wonder in previous generations if that, if that might have been true.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I don't think it's just Americans. I think a lot of people um, have, you know, sort of a like a not, you know, they think they you own know, German food isn't really my thing. Um, but certainly that it, Germany's crimes have, have made a lot of people, especially people, of Jewish heritage, but a lot mm-hmm. of people look at Germany with different eyes. And I think that that is understandable and, um, to a certain degree. And I think it's also great that you people can then come here and realize like, oh, you know, 80 years have gone by. And while there's obviously still a lot of work to do in in lots of different respects, Germany is not the country it once was. And Germans are not the people they once were. And Germany is a country of immigrants now, even though the right wing doesn't want to doesn't want to admit it. But, you know, Germany's full of people who were either born elsewhere or whose parents were born elsewhere and there's so much it's such a melting pot and um mm-hmm. especially a city like berlin um but there are a lot you know lots all of berlin's major cities are full of people from other places and it's just it's 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 really nice um I will. I do want to also say, though, it's German food. Like, I don't want to turn it into something it's not. This isn't. It's not Italy, right? I mean, right. Italian food is popular and beloved for <laughs> for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think German food. But I also don't want to make German food sound like it's not delicious. I mean, everybody loves schnitzel, and of course, the Austrians will say that's not German; it's Austrian. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. There are lots of you know food. I mean, hamburgers, hot dogs, all of that comes from Germany. There's a reason why. So many German foods are recognizable to Americans is because you know, in America, something like I think it's like 40 million Americans have German heritage, they're the largest number of immigrant, you know, of descendants of immigrants than any other um, nationality. Well, and it was so, interesting,
0: like coming to Germany. Like, I started in Munich and we went to like mm-hmm. my first meal there, I think, was at a beer hall. And you know, it just, I
1: remember, I remember yeah. you wrote about it, yeah,
0: yeah, and we had like you know obviously like pretzels and sausages and beer and like a lot of my early meals in Germany were that kind of stuff but when I got to Berlin my first meal was at our hotel which was like overlooking the zoo and I remember it was like an Israeli restaurant in our hotel and I just remember realizing like in Berlin it's like not only has Berlin or, or that you know the people of Berlin like sort of confronted their history it's almost like everyone's like moved past it it's like okay like it's been processed it's been thought about there's art about it there's museums about it there's it's just like it's so integrated into the culture there that it's not like everyone's like shoving it down and like let's not talk about that it was like oh no we're talking about it we've addressed it and I don't know I just felt like very modern and very adult and very um sophisticated in a way that I really loved and I and I thought it, it it really moved me in a way the the way that history was integrated into the life of Berlin. Um, and that's what I liked so much about it. And I guess it's probably true of the cuisine there too, that, you know, that's like, it, it's growing along with the culture that like you're saying, like now it's, now it's fresh vegetables and, and immigrant culture and other cuisines are mixing in and it speaks to where, you know, G- Germany is now, as opposed to where it was 50 years ago.
1: Yes, for sure, for sure. And it's constantly changing. I mean, even just in the last ten years, when I moved here ten years ago or eleven years ago, um the the state of restaurant dining was was pretty dire still. It was better mm-hmm. than it had been twenty years earlier, but it was not in any way comparable to New York or London or anything like that. And in the past ten years, there's been this immense change in the restaurant culture in Berlin mm-hmm. um, way more sort of adventurous um restaurateurs but also people are becoming more adventure- adventurous Germans are much more interested now in um in trying foods that aren't aren't tailored to their palates for a long time Indian food Asian food was was tailored to to German palates, mm-hmm. um, and the Germans didn't seem particularly interested in in changing that or interrogating why that mm-hmm. was the case. But now that that started to change, and you can get really amazing. There's lots of Thai people in Berlin. There's lots of Vietnamese people. There's, I mean, just delicious food um, mm-hmm. from all over the place. A lot of Korea. Well, they've always, there've always there have been Koreans in West Berlin for since the seventies. So Korean food is very well represented here. You can get really my, my father who's obsessed with Korean food, pr- eats more Korean food in Berlin than he does in Boston, more or less. <laughs> so That's anyway, funny. yeah, it's What's, really, is, yeah, it's cool.
0: Curry, Currywurst is a German uh, thing,
1: right? Not just a German thing. It's a Berlin invention. It was invented by a woman in Charlottenburg. I think her name was Hatha something or other. And, um, Yeah. So the currywurst is just basically a sausage that's been doused in ketchup and then sprinkled with curry powder. Mm. And it's, I mean, I mean, here's the thing is that what you have to understand (laughs) is that Berlin (laughs) is um, not a culinary destination in terms of German food. Berlin cuisine is really um, sort of Low brow, you know, working class, as they would say. Berlin has always been a working city. Um, whereas the real sort of high end German food—I mean, high end is the wrong word—but the, the 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 famous dishes of German cooking really come from the south and the Bavarians and the Swabians. They take their food very seriously, much more so than than <laughs> than Berliners do. So it's kind of emblematic that our, you know, our famous food here is the currywurst, which is really just like
0: street food. Street food. Well, I mean, it, it kind of leads to the question uh, I was going to ask you. might give you indigestion,
1: yeah.
0: Um, which was about sort of, oh, you're kind of breaking up a little bit, but I, now I hear you. Um, uh. Uh, I was going to ask you about taking on the mantle of you know, classic German baking, you know, classic German cooking. Is it stressful to sort of put that on your shoulders and kind of publish these recipes and then open yourself up, I guess, to the scrutiny of Germans who'll be like, that's not how you make blah, 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 blah. And that's not the rest. You know, I mean, was that something that happened with the first book or was it mostly embraced by Germans?
1: Yeah. I mean uh, the book, um, the, the one of the most gratifying experiences of writing that book has been that Germans either, um, people with like German grandparents who were like, Oh my God, I always wanted to have the recipes that my grandmother made. And now I have them in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, But also here in in Germany, I mean, my book wasn't published in German, so it's only available in English, which means Mm. that it it has a slightly smaller um, reach uh, than it would here, but, but no, largely people have been very appreciative of my, of my efforts to bring like the real traditional stuff to, to the American market or to the world's market, let's say, I mean, my goal isn't to, and what I think is really important to clarify is that I'm not trying to pass these off as my recipes. I'm trying mm-hmm. to basically curate what I think are the emblematic recipes of German cooking and Austrian cooking and German and Austrian baking mm-hmm. as, and with a few Swiss things um, thrown in. And, um, the testing and developing is really just to get um, each recipe to a point where I, it can produce the the result that that will be most authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had on the baking book, I had a German assistant who is a baker extraordinaire helping me and sort of vetting things with me and giving me a perspective on, you know, yes, this tastes right. This, this, no, this doesn't. Um, This time around I'm on my own, but she's Mm going to, she's going to help here and there. But, Uh um, but, but I know German food well enough that I think I have a pretty good sense of, you know, evaluate, you know, being able to evaluate what I, what I hope the final result to be. So yeah, I, I consider myself sort of like an ambassador of German but mm-hmm. I'm not German, but I can, I want to help people see the deliciousness of yeah.
0: German ways. Well, you're in a perfect <laughs> p- position to sort of like play that role because of like being in between. I mean, I'm curious when yeah. you, when you test these recipes for an American audience or for, uh, for a non-German audience, do you have to use ingredients? Like, do you, get American butter versus like European style butter? Or like, how do you negotiate the difference? Because it feels like when you go to Europe, and you have a pastry, or you have a sauce, it tastes different because of access to the better cream and better, you know, more butter fat in the butter. So how do you work that through as you're testing?
1: Well, in the that won't really be an issue with the cooking book as much. But with the baking book, um, we tested the recipes with obviously, with sort of standard German supermarket butter, which mm-hmm. is higher fat than Land Lakes is. But in the meantime, in America, you can get high fat butter and mm-hmm. you can get Kerrygold and Kerrygold is just the most delicious butter ever. Yeah. So in my in the baking book, I always specify when I think it's important for people to use the the, the higher fat butter. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, a lot of the recipes are fine with American butter. I mean, the flavors aren't, it's not, it's not like this is French patisserie where you're measuring, you know, like th- three and a half grams of powdered gelatin and right. balancing it with one and a half grams of egg. You know, it's a little more um, rustic than that. And so mm-hmm. you can get away with sort of cutting, not, not cutting edges, not cutting corners. That's the wrong term. But you can, the the, the ingredients aren't that far apart.
0: Right. And I guess my my final question before we get to your dinner is uh, is there what are what are the foods that you miss the most from the U.S.
1: What are the foods? So I really it's almost more ingredients more than anything else that I miss. But um, I I guess in what I miss is being able to from my time in New York specifically is being able to walk out my front door. And have an unbelievably delicious sort of vibrant meal within a few minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I feel like American American cooks are still, or American restaurants and and food places are still a little bit more adventurous and um, produce like that. You've got you've got such great access to fresh produce that we just in Central Europe it's difficult, even though mm. you'd think that with Italy around the corner, there's just not the same breadth of um, of offerings. So like Mm -hmm. going to a whole foods or whatever, you're just going to see like twice as many vegetables as we can get here, especially Mm -hmm. like dark leafy greens. But, um, (laughs) but, um, also another thing that's kind of hard to get here is really good Mexican food. I mean, it's getting better, but Mm -hmm. not in the same way that it is available in the States. Um,
0: and and, and i guess like to flip it around like when you got back to germany was there like a specific dish that you were so excited to eat again
1: well german bread i mean it's a cliche but it's true german bread is just really wonderful those really sort of dark um Mm -hmm. seedy sour loaves with those those are pretty great and hard to find anywhere else i i don't actually eat gluten anymore so i can't really eat those breads anymore now but I was excited about them 10 years ago
0: (laughs) I'm sorry to hear that yeah that's That's okay
1: it's fine (laughs)
0: um well I guess the time has come to get to our final question which is what did you have for dinner tonight
1: blow all my credibility as a food professional and tell you that I uh had fish sticks um (laughs) we had fish sticks and frozen green beans because my children think that they are amazing and um and uh and some steamed rice
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay but I want to know how how Louisa Weiss makes her fish sticks I mean do you just microwave them do you toast them do you bake them in the oven is it a specific kind of fish stick that you seek out
1: yes okay so I do have an opinion about the fish sticks they have to be from this one brand and um they're they're coated in like a in like a batter rather than a breadcrumb coating. Mm. Right. Cause there's what's, like what's two the different brand? kinds. Well, it's called Iglo here. Eagle. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't think there's like a captain, like a, a, a sort of rugged looking fisherman captain uh-huh. with a white beard on as the logo. Mm-hmm. And they come in two different kinds. They come either breadcrumbed or battered and the yeah. battered ones are, are really superior. Mm-hmm. And um if I'm making one box of them, I will fry them in some vegetable oil wow. on both sides and drain them on a paper towel. But if I'm making two boxes, which I was today because my husband was very hungry and the children were too, I just bake them in the oven.
0: <laughs> but that's, I mean, frying the fish sticks in oil is like, that's, that's, that's got some credibility there. I mean, that's, that's an extra step most people wouldn't go to.
1: Well, I don't have a microwave. So okay. i don't I only have the option of frying, and I don't deep fry them or anything. I put like a little mm-hmm. coating of oil in my skillet, and then I you know stick the put the heat it up, put the fish sticks in it, turn them around four minutes later, and then they're yeah. done <laughs> there's a new there's it's a new tra- yeah yeah
0: I, I was gonna say there's a new trend now of food writers who formerly resisted microwaves getting them, including yours truly, who after uh fifteen years, finally got a microwave and it's i gotta say in terms of just heating up food for dinner, it's really nice. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but it's like, Oh, all these years I've been like, I don't need a microwave. And then it's like, Oh, but actually it's a really fast way to get hot food on the table. Not that you don't know that. Yeah. No, um, I, I, you know,
1: my, my husband grew up with the microwave and my mother-in-law is obsessed with hers. So I, I, I I see it. And I love hearing about people who really dig their appliances. Like, I feel like that's, I really love listening or reading articles about like why a toaster oven is the greatest thing on the planet or why a microwave is so great, <laughs> but I don't yeah. have any room in my kitchen. <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, I, I didn't think I had room in my kitchen, but I somehow. But you room.
1: made room. You made yeah. room. <laughs> I thought
0: it was funny because I bought this cookbook. I won't say the name. That's all about microwave cooking. It just came out. I mean, I'm sure you know what oh, I'm talking about. I know, about. It. I know yeah. which one you're talking about. Yeah. And I thought I was going to do all kinds of things from it, but I'm not really doing that stuff. I'm really honestly just using it to heat up like leftovers and make popcorn. Popcorn in the microwave, <gasps> as much as I've done like the stovetop, I know that like all the food people are like, just do it in a pot and it's so much better, but it's really nice to pop popcorn in a microwave. I've got to say.
1: Yes. I a hundred percent agree with you. And also for baking, is it melting chocolate in a microwave? Yes. The best, like the easiest yes. thing and heating up Milk for, you know, whatever you need hot milk for.
0: Or or even like, I just learned that you can soften butter, not by putting the stick of butter in the microwave, because I would just melt it, but by putting a, a measuring glass of water in the microwave, heating that, taking it out, and then putting the butter in the cold, you know, just putting it in the microwave and it will soften it.
1: What? That's amazing. I had no
0: idea. Well, Here. I mean, that's what we're here for. This is lunch therapy. (laughs) uh, Well, Louisa, this was so much fun. And do do you feel like we covered all your psychological ground? I mean, we had a little blip (laughs) in the middle when we had our technical difficulties, but. um, I'm
1: really sorry about that. Um, No, no, no.
0: I think that was my fault because I had to pee so bad. So I was trying to be professional. No, it's not your fault. I drank so much water and so much coffee. Um, But I feel like we got into some good territory with your identity as a German, American, yeah. uh, Italian. We dealt with your link between your emotions and your cooking. Um, yeah, and, and we also plugged your new newsletter, which is once again "Letter from Berlin."
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It was so cool to talk to you. So nice, and I just yeah, I really love your podcast. It's so much oh, fun to
0: thank you. Hear and it was chat
1: so... about lunch.
0: <laughs> oh, well, it's great talking to you too. And if you ever come to LA, let me know. And I'll Aww. let you know if I'm back in Berlin anytime soon.
1: I wish for LA is my spiritual home. One day I will be there again in the, my, in my next life. <laughs> You're
0: welcome to come anytime. Um, all right, we'll have a great rest of your night and thanks again.
1: Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon.
0: <laughs> Bye. Thank you
1: soon. Bye. Bye.